a Highline podcast. Welcome to Ravel, a roundtable show about how faith gets complex with the vast amount of information at our fingertips. For some people, this complexity has caused the unraveling of their faith, and for other people, it's been liberating. Take us, for example. I'm Stephen. I'm Josh. And I'm Emily. We each grew up in different parts of the American Christian spectrum, and as some of our beliefs migrate, we still feel like our theology is in process. Theology always has fundamentally been, and will always be, an exploratory dialogue. That alone is proof that faith raveling doesn't have to be a crisis, even if it feels like it. We don't have all the answers, so we want to use this show to model what it can look like to genuinely sort through beliefs in real time. So share a drink with us as we pull on the thread of our own pressing questions. Thanks for listening. Hello, hello, hello. Hello. Hola. So uh, here we are recording on this fine, wonderful autumn day. What are you all drinking today? Um, It is such an autumn day. You are absolutely right. Like it is chilly here. I put on sweats and a hoodie and I almost never do that, even Amazing. in my own house. So. I'm very excited to announce that I am not feeling the best, so I might sound a little <laughs> deeper on this episode. I'm very excited uh, for it. And so I am drinking a Gatrod. It is a Glacier Freeze Frost edition, and I'm also drinking some Sorry, bone- wait, hold on. That's a Gatorade? <laughs> yes. Thank you. Yeah. I'm sorry. I just, I I forget the Americans pronounce it a little differently. I forget. Oh sorry. <laughs> that took me a second. I was like, what flavor is that of what? <laughs> <laughs> for a while i was thinking i was thinking about starting a tiktok where it was like gatorade cocktails and like calling a gatrod like a liqueur or something oh, do anyway, you guys remember hot um, gatorade oh on YouTube? yeah yeah mm-hmm. what a classic no pour, i'm gonna say no to that one, one gatorade is not hot gatorade no we'll put it in well, the show notes I, it's a classic youtube video it's classic yep you're talking about hot kool-aid i made this for you oh no i am talking about hot kool-aid dang it sorry <laughs> screwed it up you guys i'm also drinking some chicken bone broth that i boiled with some onions and garlic and a little bit of salt i love drinking broth in the fall it is just chef's kiss Mm -hmm. i feel like i owe the audience a formal apology for messing hot kool-aid up and not hot gatorade (laughs) you understand how my brain like where you're learning my brain yeah i'm learning i'm gonna take you're I, listening. I, I'm going to be a host of this podcast for many, many years. I just <laughs> action, need to take some time action. <laughs> to sit with some biblical counseling. <laughs> <laughs> what are you guys drinking? Um, I am on the tail end of a Highline AeroPress ma- that I made. Delish. I, I was just editing before we came to record, so... Uh, usually to uh, give myself a pick-me-up while I get through all the details of our older episodes in the edit. I'll make a cup of coffee. So I'm on the very tail end of that. Mm. So I have as a backup when this is finished, I have a, it's a summer pale ale. I know it's autumn time now, but. Tail end of summer. Yeah. It was left over in my fridge. This is from Imagination Brewing. It's called the Sum of Light Summer Pale Ale. Oh. Imagination be, is in Missoula, right? I believe so. I'm looking at the can it's here. The same one I'm thinking of. Imagine that sounds good. It's yeah, Imagination Brewing Company in Missoula. You got it. Boom. Got it in one, Josh. 
Wow. I have my water approved by you two because I added stupid things to it so it counts as a beverage. Ooh, ooh, what'd you add? What did you add? Uh, take a guess. Lemon. Lemon? I did. Yes. Good job. Last time it was lime. <laughs> Wanted to switch it up. So I have a stupid piece of lime in my water. Um, and then <laughs> since I was coming to the church to record, I zipped t- through the drive through of my favorite coffee shop, Rawhide Coffee here in Cody, Wyoming. And I got a caramel cinnamon steamer. Yum. Ooh. Sounds yeah. pretty nice. It is bomb. bomb. Steamers are the unsung heroes of coffee shops. They, they can are. be really good. They are. You just, yeah. You got to know what to do, you know? It's much more interesting hot chocolate, in my opinion. It is, yeah. Yeah. It's very true. I like it. All good beverages. Josh, we want you to feel better because today's topic comes to us from our dear, dear friend, Jeff. Uh, Jeff has submitted a topic for us. We have no idea. Okay, for all of you who are listening and joining us for the first time, every so often we have people who submit uh, voice recordings of topics for us to discuss, and we do not get to hear it beforehand. It is live for us in this moment, and we get to take it as it is. So without further ado, Stephen, if you have it queued up for us, let's hear from our good friend, Jeff. Yes, ma'am. Here we go. Hey, dear beautiful people of Ravenland. Here's a little thought from me to start off the conversation about whether our model of church is built on the imperial model of hierarchy, patriarchy and conformity dressed up as unity. The Nicene Creed is often held up as an attempt to bring unity from the diversity of beliefs in the early believing communities. The truth of the matter is perhaps found in the fact that those who disagreed with it were not only excluded from the meetings held in Constantine's villas, there's a thought, but were exiled. The creed itself has no interest in the life and ministry of Jesus. It reads as born of the Virgin Mary, comma, suffered under Pontius Pilate, comma, was crucified, etc., etc., This is what the likes of Richard Rohr and the Franciscan movement call the great comma. Nothing about the teachings of Jesus, just that he was born, he suffered, he died, etc. Or nothing about the seminal exposition on this new kingdom, the realm of God, nothing, nothing about the Sermon on the Mount. So it leaves me thinking that Christianity has very little to do with the teachings of Jesus and embraces the power model of living. Unity as control, truth as a hammer, God as a claim to imperial power. Dear triumvirate of theological thought, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this uh, naughty little problem. (laughs) Okay. First, first of all, I must insist that we all add triumvirate of theological thought to our Twitter bios. <laughs> I'm doing it right now. That's amazing. I love that we are residents of Ravelland. Um, yep. I, I feel love like Jeff being... calls us something different every time. He does. It's, it's delightful. This is, oh, this is a great topic. <laughs> when did he submit this question? Was it before oh. the death of Queen Elizabeth II? I believe it was, actually. Whoa. What interesting timing. I mean, obviously, we <gasps> knew that her health was declining. But so, I mean, if it's not obvious, Jeff lives in England. And I think that this is a really interesting question, especially 
like coming from someone who is in a place that is so famous for monarchy and colonialism. Mm-hmm. Imperialism, yeah. And then like on the church side, the Anglican church and the birth of that. So very interesting question coming mm. from that context. Clapping, Jeff. I am clapping. Yes. <laughs> I really like his initial question of like, have we, I don't remember exactly how we worded it, but basically like, have we disguised power as unity? Yes. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah. And I think his question in regards to Christianity isn't about Jesus's teaching. Like, that's not, that's so sad to say, but like, after hearing him, I have to agree. If we are going to see Christianity being based on Jesus's teachings and the the beliefs that came from that, then we shouldn't be reciting the Nicene Creed because it has no foundation or any remnants of Jesus's teachings. The Nicene Creed was basically laying down the foundation of what people believe in regards to the Trinity and who those parts of the Trinity are. And so when it gets to Jesus the Son and it lays out all those things who suffered under Pontius Pilate, died, you know, was born of the Virgin Mary, crucified, rose again, blah, 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 he's come to judge the wicked, the quick and the dead, like, it has nothing to do with who Jesus was in his teaching, who he was interacting with people and who he was in the world. It was who Jesus was because people couldn't decide if he truly was God incarnate. And so they needed to lay down the foundation for that. I like that point about like it was trying to identify the members of the Trinity. Would you say that it's fair to suggest that those descriptors that we're talking about for Jesus are meant only to be like indicators of the person we're talking about and not necessarily belief statements? Correct. That's the argument I've heard, especially tying it to Pontius Pilate. Like, interesting. Immortalizing the guy who sentenced him to death is a way of us tying it to like history textbooks, I guess. Yes. And it was because believers at the time had a hard time coming together with the idea of was Jesus born and in flesh and incarnate God, or was Jesus essentially like a prophet? And so this was trying to establish identifying markers of who Jesus was historically and marking him permanently as part of the Trinity. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the Apostles' Creed was even earlier than the Nicene Creed. And it basically says the same thing, doesn't it? Like even the Apostles' Creed doesn't have anything to do with the life of Jesus. It's... I I love this idea of the great comma that's like what a void in that pause of <laughs> he was born of the virgin mary and suffered under pontius pilate like okay what happened between there though what why was he suffering why was he crucified like mm. it's not even part of the the apostles creed the main difference between the two is the apostles creed is focused more on baptism of jesus while the nicene creed huh. is more linked to the death of jesus Really? I'm like running through it in my head. I believe in God the Father. Because the Apostles' Creed is used, like, I'm thinking in the Methodist Church, we use it a lot during baptisms because it focuses a lot on the start of Jesus' ministry. And then, yes, like, he died and he, you know, he ascended into heaven. But the main focus isn't on that part of the Creed. It's in there, but that's not what the main focus of the Creed is. Interesting. But it does outdate the, or, predate the Nicene Creed by almost 200 years, I want to say. Like, it was like 
it, second yes. century church with the apostles creed. That's interesting to me, but they still kind of do the same thing. Like they'll mention the baptism, which I guess is a, is a plus. Right. Considering because the oldest, the oldest form of the creed, cause it changed throughout history, but the oldest known form was approximately like 340 AD. The apostles creed that we know came to fruition as the form that we know around 700 AD. Oh, wow. Okay. That does feel like it does a disservice to the teachings of Jesus. And I think that has set a pretty dangerous precedent for millennia forward. Mm. Well, and again, it's because at the time, the believers weren't questioning the teachings of Jesus. They were questioning who Jesus was and trying to establish the foundations of Christianity. Okay, so that's that's good to keep in mind. It may so it's it might not be that the creeds were intentionally omitting all that. It's just that wasn't their thesis that they were trying right. to prove and or back up. So, and one of the points that Jeff brought up, which is important to note, was yes, those whose beliefs were not basically voted in majority, um they were exiled and mm. they their viewpoints, their perspectives are not mentioned in the creeds because they were not the I hate saying this, but they weren't the winning group when it came to putting their their foundations in the creeds. So on that note, are you aware if there's any like legitimate historicity to what people call the group of like the Desert Fathers? Are would that be considered like the Desert Fathers and Mother Mystics that were exiled from like they differed enough that they were kind of like kicked out of the team, kicked out of the group? Yeah, they like they were the early Christian hermits. Yeah. And like around the third century was where they really started picking up. And when they basically when they weren't welcomed or their ideas weren't fully taken into consideration, it was like probably around three, like three fifty ish sometime was uh-huh. where um the followings of like Anthony for sure, like he was a big one would pick up a following they were basically like yeah ostracized and so they huh. there's a great book and i actually have it here in my office um oh sayings of the desert fathers mm. it's a collection of wisdom from some of the early monks and nuns at the time it's a wonderful yeah. wonderful piece of literature the reason i ask i guess is my main connection to it is there's kind of a a uh, fan theory that that's where the Enneagram was born was the Desert Fathers, like exploring. I don't know. I which I believe has <laughs> since been debunked. Yeah, I I also yeah. recognize that. That's why I call it a fan theory. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Interesting though. So the the creeds. I think I have a new way of thinking about the creeds, especially in that sense of they weren't trying to have something that really addressed the the big points of Jesus's teaching. Correct. They had a thesis that they were trying to back up, and that was the Trinitarian nature of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah, because there is major conflict with Arius and Arianism, mm-hmm. which is why the first Council of Nicaea was a big deal, because it was addressing what are we going to believe, the position of Son, like Jesus was the Son of God, or was he not? Like, yeah. was he something else? And in order to do that, Right, that you are inherently going to omit things that don't necessarily help you back up that claim. I Mm -hmm. do think 
to Jeff's point, I don't think the modern church has a good sense of that history. No, yeah. And so when I think modern Christians say they are like creed and Bible believing Christians and they don't understand that history, I think that does leave the door open to slip toward this imperial model of church by hierarchy, church by patriarchy, church by power over rather than mm-hmm. community among and power under, right? right? Just because if we, man, it it really is kind of that cliche of if you forget the lessons of history, you're bound to repeat them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think a lot of Christians would still say, yeah, even if we like remember our historical biases and that like Christians didn't always agree about the Trinity, for instance, and that that's why we had to have the creeds and councils and some things had to get dispelled as heresy. I think that even like recognizing that history, I think a lot of Christians would still say, no, this is still correct. Like mm. that, that doesn't matter that we had to do that. Like this is the correct truth. And the thing I keep thinking about with Jeff's question is the, the social function of like rulemaking. And I, I think that like belief making is like very, very similar in that. Mm-hmm. Like, I think the creeds are a great example. Like, like there's, it then becomes like an authority to appeal to. Like, even with like the Desert Fathers thing, I think lots of Christians all over the map like love to quote, they love to find evidence of what they're trying to purport in what the Desert Fathers say. But like lots of right. things that early Christian saints would say, like we would not, <laughs> we would not espouse. Like Tertullian arguing that like we will get to watch people in hell suffer and be tortured and like revel in it. Like, very few Christians, I think, would get on board with that today. Like that's mm-hmm. that's a little like we we might agree that like they're going to hell, but like we're not like going to watch it on TV or something. Like that's not. <laughs> but like he believed that, you know. So, I uh, the th- the thing that really sticks out for me with Jeff's question is like the way in which these socially function to be like cause that authoritative hierarchy structure. Mm-hmm. Like I think we even see this in the present day with like. The only one I can think off the top of my head is like the Nashville statement where like a bunch of churches came together and they like are trying to do that in like a very authoritative way to say like, no, we all of us churches agree on this, even though it's like a very small number of churches. But like they're like trying to do that to appeal to an authority and then it like establishes those pastors and leaders and writers as authoritative right. to their people. And I f- like that's what really sticks out to me about Jeff's question. Like it seems like unity, but like outside of that microcosm. You just see another group disagreeing with other people that they're trying to differentiate themselves from. And by the mere act of making a show out of, see how many people came to the convention and agreed and signed on to this thing? Like that Mm -hmm. just solidifies something that is just recognized as, oh, this person must know what they're talking about because a lot of people are listening to them. But I also get the need for boundaries too. (laughs) Like I feel like that's what's difficult about all of this is like, Methodism, for instance, Emily, to use you as an example, like Methodists have to describe themselves in a way that is like distinctly Methodist and differentiates themselves as Christian, but also distinctly Methodist. And like, right. like your current church split at large, not like your, your individual church, but the Methodists, mm-hmm. like they're like, we're in the process of watching that happen. And, but it's like not the creed. Uh, I don't know. But I, I just see so much connection there. Oh, at, at- very very similar with the idea of the creeds because it was as methodists and i'm going to specify and say united methodists it was determining what do we believe in like who are we we <laughs> what are the foundations of methodism that we 
agree on. And there were things that we didn't see eye to eye on. And that's what the split basically created. And so it was basically like the the Nicene Creed modern day. <laughs> like we have the global Methodist church and, you know, whether they see us as United Methodists being those who are ostracized or we're ostracizing them, whatever the case may be. It's a very interesting situation because at the end of the day, and I think the same can be applied for the Council of Nicaea as well, if the other group had won, right? So if if the belief that Jesus was in fact not God incarnate and in fact was more of like a prophet, right? If the other half had won all those years ago, Christianity today would look completely different. And I can only imagine what denominations and Christianity as a whole would look like in the modern day. Because the only reason things are the way they are is because of the council that met and determined what it was Christianity was going to believe in. And if the results had been different, Christianity as we know it would look so different. We don't even like, I don't even know if there would be splits. I don't even know if there would be like different denominations or or anything like would there even be a trinity of that case because if that was the case then like <laughs> everything we know foundationally as christians and for theology's sake would look so different that's just mind blowing to me so i think we all understand to a degree what jeff is talking about when when we talk about the imperial church or like this model of power disguised as unity I really liked that idea. So I wonder what the thought experiment would be. So Emily, let's say that the other group did prevail over what ended up being the Nicene Council. What do we think the opposite of the Imperial Church would look like? Hmm. Not to just be an originalist about this, but I think it would look a lot like the early church did like more collaborative and community-based and grassroots versus following anybody but Jesus. I would have to agree with Josh. Well, what's funny to me in that too is like so many pastors also love to talk about trying to get back to the early church, but like functionally, that would probably mean their position didn't exist. That would be working themselves out of a job. Yeah. Which the unfortunately large uh, overlap in the Venn diagram between the modern imperial church and capitalism is pretty gross in my opinion. And that, I, that is a way we can tug on that thread is saying like, I mean, pastors have jobs. That is their job. That is their income. Right. And like, that's how that economic model works, which is interesting to me, especially because a lot of Christians like to point to Paul as a pretty big role model. His job was not a, <laughs> pastor his job he was a tent maker mm. who funded mm. all his work with like a real ass trade paul was just the first public christian theologian yeah so do you think it do you think heading toward an imperial church actually started with paul then because in my mind like when we talk about a community-based grassroots very decentralized like uh, I, I'm kind of wondering if the imperial model just came out of human nature because even the idea of Paul becoming an authority almost feels like it kind of goes against that whole grassroots community-based vibe because he became basically the, the, the world's equivalent of a televangelist in those days. 
and is now uber famous because of all his letters published in the New Testament. Like, was Paul just the original megachurch pastor? <laughs> That'd be the closest <laughs> descriptor, yeah. No, I don't think it is. You don't think I, so? No. Why not? Like, I get it, I, but I think, like, I think maybe in the current day, a lot of people see Paul that way, but I don't think that's necessarily indicative of, like, his social function. Mm. Like, I think there could be an argument to be made. I'm not sure I'm the one to make it here, but I think there could be an argument for still having people, like, in leadership of a group or, like, maybe, like, a guiding force of some kind without imposing power disimbalance on a group. Do you think that's truly possible? Ever or at the current moment? Yeah, ever. I think it's potentially possible. I'm not exactly sure what it would look like in terms of church, but like, surely there's a way to protect these kinds of communities from just being filled with narcissists. Like, we know that narcissists tend to gravitate towards positions of power. And that's not to say every pastor is a narcissist. I, Emily, I do not think you are. The pastors that I know, I don't think are. But it's pretty well documented that like narcissists thrive in those kinds of power disimbalances, whether it's in the church or not. Mm -hmm. And I think that I, I think a lot of it comes back to attitude too. Like I think if somebody is actually pointing beyond themselves, maybe in kind of an attitude of like Christ is our pastor, Christ is the head of the church rather than I am your pastor. Right. I mean, I don't know. It's hard also because like sometimes people say one thing and they don't actually act like it. And there's like a lot of granular <laughs> nuance to it but like i would like to hope that it is possible for a religious community to exist in such a way that does not prioritize one person's voice over other people's and maybe it did and maybe that's where we lost sight of it all mm. you know maybe the maybe the monks have it right <laughs> maybe maybe the desert fathers and the nuns that were ostracized they didn't have like appointed leaders they they all led each other and it was very communal mm -hmm. very intentional and i remember like even just visiting in the holy land and visiting a monastery the leadership that was there was not at all how we would envision leadership in our churches where it was a pastor and then an associate pastor and clearly there is a hierarchy of power that is disproportionate. It is very much equally distributed and people tended to what they needed to and they took care of the things that they needed to and they took care of one another. And honestly, in environments like that where everyone is thriving and everyone is responsible for each other as well as themselves, I think churches should take a look at that and see, hey, Harm is reduced in, in areas like this because we don't have people who can dictate and control situations. Because I think that's where harm is done the most and mm. where the church fails is because we have this idea of we need someone to lead us. And if this person's going to lead us, then they are in charge. You can lead and not be in charge. It is very much possible. That's why I love the idea of the sheepdog metaphor because you're guiding the sheep but you're still listening to the shepherd <laughs> like the sheepdog does not run the show and churches fail in that because 
the hierarchy mm. of this is the pastor, this is the way it's going to go. The pastor has all of the authority. They can determine how everything's going to be governed, how everything is going to be laid out. And that fails people. That fails the church. That fails Christianity. And I think Christianity was not supposed to be this way. We just want to say how honored we are that you listen to Ravel. Seriously, there's a lot of great shows out there, and we're grateful to be in your feed. Thank you for helping us on our journey to normalize people asking questions about theology. If you want to support what we're doing, the best way to help is to tell a friend about us. We want to be a resource for people on their faith journeys, whether they're deconstructing, reconstructing, switching churches, deconverting, and everything in between. And if you're able, you can support us for as little as $3 a month on our Patreon. Supporting us helps us cover fees, software, equipment, future ideas, and more. For all of you church finance skeptics out there like me, don't worry, we're keeping an open book for transparency. For our supporters, we've built an online space where we can be together. We know it can be difficult to ask questions about our faith, so we want to make that more accessible, comfortable, and normal. We're using an app called Discord, where you'll get private access. You already know us, and we'd love to get to know you. Thank you to everyone who's already supporting, and thank you to Louis Zong for the use of our theme music, In Full Color. Ravel is a founding podcast of the Highline Media Network. And here's a word from one of our sister shows, No Normal People. Hello, and welcome to No Normal People. This is a show where we prove that the more you get to know the normal people in your life, you discover that there really are no normal people in your life. You know how there's like famous people in the world that are known very well and how they go on podcasts? Yeah. Well, we don't do that. Marketable names and yeah, audience. Yeah, buzzwords, and, buzz yeah, names. Social following. Yeah. And, John yeah. Buzz. And, well, we interview people like your Uncle Terry, who collects model trains. Because he's normal. We'll even interview you, even if you don't have the cool trains that your uncle has. You can email us at nopeoplepod at gmail.com or visit our show page on www.highline.network to sign up to be on the show. And remember, the only normal people you know are the ones you don't know very well. Hey, I've been wondering, could we grab some coffee sometime? I've been wanting to check in on your walk with the Lord. Wake up, that coffee trap was a bad dream. What if I told you there was a way to never get asked out for coffee again? Boom, roasted, it's our own Highline blend. This coffee comes with a level of complexity and nuance never before found in your local Christian coffee shops. Visit highline.network slash shop or tap the link in the show notes to solve all of your problems. And now your introverted, heretical ass can finally enjoy a cup of coffee and some goddamn peace for once. Whoa, okay. Sorry I asked. Just trying to connect a bit outside of church. Guess I'll be praying for you. Brew methods not included. Coffee is extremely hot and can burn you unless you're an iced coffee heretic. Coffee not actually guaranteed to solve any of your relational problems and awkward theological conflicts or actually prevent you from getting asked out on a date. Just tell them coffee is Christian crack and you've sworn off this stuff. Results may vary. Ask your pastor if consuming coffee is right for you. The Highline Blend. I think it's also difficult when there's historically been and there currently is 
an education gap in the church in terms of like biblical literacy, historical literacy, etc. And like for so often it was mm-hmm. one person teaching the masses and there wasn't this like accessibility to information like there is now, like mm-hmm. podcasts and resources and commentaries. And like, it was just so out of reach for the longest time. And, oh, you know what? The Quakers, I think the Quakers to my knowledge have no established hierarchy structure or maybe is dependent on the local congregation. That is correct. So like possible, <laughs> but like, honestly, like, from my personal experience, this is like one of my biggest hesitations in being a part of church. Like there's lots of things that I could be I think could be improved and uh not taught. <laughs> but like I think like my biggest generalization problem with the church is its imperial like structure. Like the mm-hmm. way that it no offense, Emily, but the way that it focuses usually on just one person's voice and opinion, um, the yeah. way that it just like automatically puts that person usually literally on a platform and pedestal and like to that point i think a lot of it goes back to design like i think that there's a name for the mm-hmm. design where it's like one person facing a group of people like similar to yeah um traditional education styles uh church styles uh, there's a name for it and i can never remember the name for the style of design but like i think that's what's really interesting about like seeing church design change over time i feel like we've mentioned it before but i think it's been a while about like how there used to be like some sort of half wall in between clergy and lay people. And then the distance shrank, the wall shrank, the wall went away. Um, it became banisters, like especially in uh, post-Catholic denominations. Actually, I don't know if mm-hmm. Methodist churches tend to have those either. Some do. And then like we almost start to see like a, like a fanning effect of the congregation where it's starting to resemble a half circle in lots of bigger churches, sometimes a full circle. And like I, I really think that a lot of the power differential can be solved through design like whether it's the design of a space Mm -hmm. the design of a service the design of leadership structure like i'm hopeful like i i think it could be changed for the better as much as i feel uncomfortable with it currently we honestly see it even within scripture gospel of luke right and even luke's apprentice who took out took after and was writing within the gospel itself um a sermon on the plane versus sermon on the mount like oh yeah oh yeah even that language where it wasn't jesus talking down to people on a mount and you know creating this hierarchy even just with distancing himself from those he was addressing versus sermon on the plane where he is equally spaced and equal level being on a plane and really voicing for the oppressed and speaking with them not at them design (laughs) <laughs> yeah it's all it's all and it's intentional design that's the thing mm. when people were building churches they knew what they were doing they it wasn't just about 100 they it wasn't just about the artistry and the beauty of the architecture it was creating and establishing power by creating the spaces the way that they are and it's crazy when you attend different denominations and you see the layout of the building i remember that was a class i did in college for sociology i had to go and attend like six other denominations or something like that. And I had to describe very, very deeply um, and very thoroughly the layout of the building, the signage of the building. Um, what were the bulletins like if they had any? Were they ADA regulated? Was there a choir loft? Were there kneeling pads? Like everything you can think of. And those things that people don't think of matter. And unfortunately, it's people 
in leadership. It's pastors. It's whoever don't think mm. of those things often because they are the ones in power. On today's episode of 99% Invisible, I'm Roman Mars. <laughs> Churches. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, for real, though. Yeah. yeah, like I feel like there is such a distinct difference to me uh, between designing for instruction and absorption versus designing for dialogue and conversation. And yeah. like, I really think that dialogue is the antidote. Yeah, which is why home churches are growing again. Thank God. I mm -hmm. love the idea of home churches because nothing says Jesus and love more than hospitality and opening up your home to other people, inviting them into your space, mm. creating an environment that is welcoming and lovingly uplifting, serving one another and sharing in dialogue, mm. not being preached at. Not being Bible thumped with theological terms that are so over people's heads that they have to go home and look it up at the end of the day. That happened to me a couple weeks ago. I had people. Come, someone did that to you? Someone came up to me after my sermon. They're like, that was a great sermon. I learned a new word today. I didn't know what her, uh, hermeneutics were. And I was like, oh, I'm so glad you learned something new. But that right there, like that is a power mm, dynamic. Totally. Using theological jargon, using terms that are not used in everyday theological conversations like hermeneutics. I don't know how often y'all use that in your everyday conversations, but here in Cody, Wyoming, that is not used every day. Uh, <laughs> well, and to your point, you have the best of intentions, too. Like you're, right. you're blind to the things that you know that other people don't know. Exactly. As is the case with all things, I see an opportunity to advocate for balance. And I can't believe I'm about to be the sermon apologist oh, right now. God, <laughs> oh, David. Really? But I, I think we see both. I, th I, I think we see a both and even in the person of Jesus and his life that is encompassed in this great comma that Jeff talks about. I think there's a mm. balance of we're in the round. I am, I, you know, like I'm multiplying fish and bread and just, Everyone is experiencing community on this hillside, right? But there's also moments where he intentionally detaches from the group a little bit, hops on a boat so he can go further out and project his voice to a bigger group. And that doesn't, that is not conducive for like a dialogue moment. Like there are often times where he'll tell a parable to a group and then he will only discuss the parable with his apostles later, like in almost a small group kind of way. <laughs> <laughs> like I think Jesus did both and I think that is always what fascinates me with the person of Jesus and the way different people can wrestle over like I get the image even if we want to speak in political terms like there are people who are conservatively theological and progressively theological and I think sometimes we are we have an instinct of saying, no, Jesus was clearly progressive because of this, this, and this reason. And other people, I think, rightly can say, no, it seems like Jesus is actually trying to conserve something of the old traditions for right reasons, X, Y, and Z. And it's like we're fighting over Jesus. We're all, we're all just like playing tug of war with his arms. And I think at some point, understanding that Jesus is both is really important and really hard to wrestle with that tension because like Josh, to your point, we're always going to want to try and just back up our preconceived notions by like looking, well, if I can't find it in the Nicene Creed, then I'm going to look to the desert fathers to back up my preconceived notions and opinions. But there's, I, I guess I'm, there's probably something to be said for both. I'll allow it. <laughs> 
I'm maybe to end on a hopeful note in similar vein with Steven, like what would either of you change about church to dispel this threat of imperialism and overarching power that takes advantage of people? Or even if it doesn't in the moment, like it, it mimics power Ooh. that does. Me, how me. would you fix it? I got what an idea. Do? I have an idea. Go, Steven, um, yes, go. Uh, uh, several hands are up right now. Steven. I <laughs> am an ex-worship leader, and I am an ex-worship leader because I did not like being one of the few people in the room that faced the other way. Mm. Totally. I think we should make the musicians that facilitate musical worship invisible. Oh. I did not expect this take. Put them behind a curtain, behind a wall, put them at the back of the room. I think they should be invisible. I think no worship leader should be tempted to consider themselves a performer in the moment of worship. Oh, interesting. Wow. Even if they are literally still performing the music? Yep. Yep. Because the, because the idea... All right. The theological idea I've always had uh, given to me in my church backgrounds as a worship leader was, we're not here to be a performance. We're here to facilitate worship. Um, and all we're going to do up on this stage is just constantly remind the people who are looking up the stage at us to look, look further up, look beyond us. Like we're all worshiping Jesus, even though we're all facing this way and we're going to spend an ass load of money on lights <laughs> and fog machines and sound, like sound equipment. We're going to get the sleekest guitars. We're going to get the most expensive drum sets we can. And I think all of that is unnecessary. And I think if churches would explicitly say, Hey, the, the music room is over in the corner. <laughs> no one's going to see you while you do this, play the same song, play it with the same amount of energy and enthusiasm because it is truly a gift unto the Lord in that moment. But we don't need you in front of people because it's going to be so easy for your ego to get wrapped up in the fact that you are now doing a free concert and that makes you feel good and that mm. detracts from worship in almost every way for both congregant yeah. and musician. You know what I've never thought about as you're saying this, Stephen, going back to Emily's example of Jesus on the plane and like trying to model things after Jesus, etc., teachings of Jesus. Where along the way did we start doing music? Like now I kind of respect, I think it's the Church of Christ that started doing no music, but it was like mostly because of access to pianos on the mm -hmm. West Coast. Yep. That that is kind of strange that we do that at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I think I could probably make a case that music actually goes back to Jewish practices of like psalms. Sure, right. So like, I, I'm I'm okay with it being an expression of a gift we can give each other and to God through like reflecting our talents back that are both naturally born in us and developed as we practice our skills. Yeah, but then let's just also have carpentry in the church. Oh, yeah. Agreed. Okay, I guess we do. I guess there's church buildings. Yep. Never mind. That was a bad point. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the thing I would fix the most is going away from the sermon style and or doing a rotational, very short sermon style that is still more conversational than not. I, I really Ooh. think that... Homilies. Yeah, like that. Um, this one church in Seattle that... I wish I went to more. I really should make the time for it because I, I do enjoy it a lot. Um, they do a shared homily that is uh, uh -huh. like an eight to 10 minute -er, and then they open it up for discussion and discussion stays around for longer than the homily did. And I love that. Is there still power structure in the church? Sure. Yeah. 
That was something Courtney's church was doing in Texas. Oh yeah. And I loved listening in on those podcasts just because I like to me, I have never seen church done that way. I started in a small town church that was very sermon focused, very Baptist. Like the sermons were usually like 30 to 40 minutes long. And then I switched to kind of a, like, not kind of a, I switched to a mega church and that became like, oh, there's the one pastor who lives eight hours away giving his TED talk. That's like all like raw, raw, full of energy. But, uh, you know, like even that, it starts feeling more like a performance than actually sharing something useful. Emily, what would you fix? You're the one who's actually in church and actively a part of it. I would say changing the sanctuary space. So whoever is preaching or sharing the message that day is not on steps or higher than Mm -hmm. those seated in the chairs or the pews. Because I think if we're going to have like a, a nice chancel area or anything like that, I think it should just be going up towards an altar or a cross or whatever, the stained glass. You know, I'm just thinking of my church. But I would I would want to move my podium <laughs> and have it down so I'm actually level with the people that I'm speaking with and speaking mm-hmm. to. Because I don't so, want to I don't want to talk at people. Here's a question of psychology though, is because I know I mean I personally am a an audiophile. Like I don't need to see a video of someone speaking to absorb what they're saying. But a lot of people do. A lot of people prefer to like fix their attention on the speaker like they want to see their mouth move they want to see the gestures because a lot of body language comes through uh speeches and sermons and all those kind of things so i i love physically putting you on the same level do you think that you would negate that the benefit of putting everyone at the same level if you still had something like a a video of you behind you so that people could still pick up on those kind of things cuz i i i think that is honestly part of it uh the the body language the potential for eye contact sometimes even just like seeing someone's lips move Um, i would say yes but if i'm equal level i'm not going to be seated i'm still going to be standing so oh okay i see like people would still be able to see me and i move around when i preach like i don't just stand behind the podium (laughs) um and i i'm very intentional about making eye contact with people okay um that was one thing in my preaching class that i very, from the very beginning, my teacher pointed out, she goes, you really look into my soul when you preach. And I'm like, is that bad? She's like, no, keep it up. Um, <laughs> what if it was more auditorium style and your podium was actually lower than everyone else? And oh, my God, I would love like that. Have an up. amphitheater style church. Yeah, oh, that would be so cool. Does that do the same thing, though? I mean, like, because I, I know we're going for a spatial like we're all on the same level. Well, no, because if you think about it, now I'm speaking up like the people are now looking down on me sure. and I'm like pleading my case saying like, hey, <laughs> like, please listen to me. I really do have words of wisdom for you, you know? <laughs> yeah, but I would say it only takes out half of the problem design wise. Yeah. Like because part of the well perceived problem, I should say a part mm-hmm. of the situation with the design is like group of people facing one person and yeah. part of the other half of it i think is like raised podium so i think it gets rid of the raised podium concept but it's still like group of people facing one person instead of like round table or uh semicircular or unless it's set up like how early doctors would do surgeries and mm-hmm. their peers would observe and take notes if it was like an experimental operation it's mm. 
it's amphitheater style, so everyone is seated above, but it's an entire circle. In the round, yeah. Mm-hmm. I would still like to see more voices. Um, I agree that that might serve for some interesting like psychology of group, but mm-hmm. I, would, I would like to see more people involved in like the voice of a church I agree. if it's going to exist. I agree. I would also, this is a hot take, I would also get rid of belief statements. Kind of going back to Jeff's original point. Hell yeah, dude. Ooh. Hell yeah. Yep. Which is something I might bring up in a future episode because there's a lot going on there. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the many byproducts is that churches do not leave any room for disagreement on a topic, usually. And I think it's hurting them. So I think my hot take is if they want to continue existing and growing, they should get rid of that. Yeah. Especially because of the pressure put on people who feel uh, a desire to volunteer or join paid staff. 100%. If you don't believe X, Y, and Z exactly how we wrote it here, then fuck off. Yep. Yeah. Which I recognize that there are pros and cons to, but I, in my opinion, think that there are more cons to that growth-wise. Completely agree. Well, any other thoughts on the church imperial before we wrap up? Should we do what we did last time and listen to Jeff's message one more time? Oh, yeah. Let's do that. (gasps) Yeah. Hey, dear beautiful people of Ravenland, here's a little thought from me to start off the conversation about whether our model of church is built on the imperial model of hierarchy, patriarchy, and conformity dressed up as unity. The Nicene Creed is often held up as an attempt to bring unity from the diversity of beliefs in the early believing communities. The truth of the matter is perhaps found in the fact that those who disagreed with it were not only excluded from the meetings held in Constantine's villas, there's a thought, but were exiled. The creed itself has no interest in the life and ministry of Jesus. It reads as, born of the Virgin Mary, comma, suffered under Pontius Pilate, comma, was crucified, etc., etc., This is what the likes of Richard Rohr and the Franciscan movement call the great comma. Nothing about the teachings of Jesus, just that he was born, he suffered, he died, etc. Or nothing about the seminal exposition on this new kingdom, the realm of God, nothing. Nothing about the Sermon on the Mount. So it leaves me thinking that Christianity has very little to do with the teachings of Jesus and embraces the power model of living. Unity as control, truth as a hammer, God as a claim to imperial power. Dear triumvirate of theological thought, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this uh, naughty little problem. This naughty little problem. Man, we did not hit the truth as a hammer bit, but oh, does no, that's that good. ring true? I forgot about that. Truth as a hammer and God as a claim to imperial power. I think the other place that we see that happening is not just in like biblicism and in creedal appeal. I think we also see it in a lot of like Protestant charismatic circles where you just utter the words God said to me and it just like holds so much weight. Like even if Oh yeah. Even if like people say that like they're teaching discernment, like just because God says like just because you think God says that doesn't mean he said it. And just because like someone tells you that, like that means you still need to discern. But like it still holds so much freaking weight. 
Like it just completely colors the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. For better or for worse. You can't question it. Like if God said it, who am I? You know, mm-hmm. that uh, God says, I believe it. Uh-huh. And when you're, I think when you're there too, like, I think it's just so hard to like, even if you do question yourself and you try to discern, I think it's still so hard to like see past your biases. Cause I've been there. Like I've totally thought that God was telling me to do something or something about a s- situation and looking back, I'm like, no, God did not. Most mm. likely. <laughs> like, that was probably me. And I was just like so deep in that culture. God did not multiply my Mountain Dew. Yeah, God did not multiply my Mountain Dew. <laughs> I don't think. Maybe. We're, <laughs> jury's still out on that one. <laughs> yeah. Still, wait, still waiting on confirmation. Awesome. Well, before we get out of here, um, I also wanted to bring up a prayer request for any prayer praying people. Um, there's a number of our patrons right now that are just going through the ringer on some health things and some personal things. So if you want to add something to your prayer list this week, pray for our patrons. Mm-hmm. They're lovely humans and we care a lot about them. We've gotten to know them and yeah. it really gives me this like sense of community that truly I've only ever found in church where like you're just constantly in contact with other people and you like know about things going on in their lives. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, so uh Say prayer if you say prayer. Yeah, we keep an excellent channel in the Discord called Prayers and Vibes. And I think among some concerns that are going on there, there are also some celebrations, which is, you know, that's a pretty classic. That feels Christianese, right? Like I have a, it's a prayer request, but a celebration. Like someone just recently learned that uh, one of their maladies is not cancerous. And that's huge. True that. Yeah, I, wow. I... What we have going on in that Discord is so cool to me because as long as we're speaking about an imperial model, the three of us do a lot of work to make sure that we're not we're not becoming gurus <laughs> in that Patreon Discord. Like I really feel like we are just joining something and not necessarily leading something and we just get I to agree. be a part of that community. That sometimes remains a lot more active than the three of us are in that group, but it's it's so special to just know that we have somewhere to go and celebrate like new job interviews or uh, grieve the loss of something or someone or be worried about illness. That's pretty wild. And uh, and like really, that's the dream of non-imperial church, right? Like to me, it is. Yes. Thank you, Jeff. Great question. Thank you. Always mm-hmm. a pleasure hearing from you, my friend. Mm-hmm. Emily, how would you end this episode? It's amazing to think the foundations of what we know as Christianity started with people debating what it is that they should believe. We still find ourselves debating on what is foundational, what's worth believing, what are things that we should let go, or what are the things that we want to hold on to. So let's keep the conversations going. Let's keep raveling it out and see what's at the end of the tunnel. Media Network, artist-owned podcasts by normal people in normal places.